On today's More Than a Test, we have Ruta Sepetys, an internationally acclaimed New York Times best-selling author of historical fiction. Her books have been published in over 60 countries and 40 languages. She's won the Carnegie Medal. She's done amazing things. Uh, and before that, she was in the music industry. We're going to talk about her experience as an author, her experience as a daughter of Lithuanian immigrants, and her experience in the music industry and making that change. We are so excited to have you here and hope you enjoy our conversation with Ruta Sepetis. Ruta, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I haven't seen you in a few years, but I will tell you that I actually say there was a moment in the last time I saw you when you talked at the school that I was working at that I consider the best moment of my education career. Um, I, I was in schools for over 10 years. And you came to visit the middle school that I worked at and we brought you out and we made it, we made it optional. Students didn't have to come. It was during their lunch hour. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> and we filled the auditorium. I have the picture. The auditorium was filled to the max. And the moment that like defines it for me is you were there talking about reading and about books. Kids are holding your books and you're going through a story and the bell rings. And these kids who are all high achievers, super academic, like they want to get to class. Like they hear that bell. They know they're supposed to go. Not a kid moves. It was silent. They wanted to hear the end of the story. And it was, it, to me, it was just the most amazing moment. So thank you for that. And thank you for being here today. Thank you for, for you know, for sharing that, that story and how you felt about it. Imagine how that feels for me. I mean, here I am talking to young readers about obscure topics in history and human beings who survived a lottery of life or death and to have them sit there. Oh, that was such a heart hop for me. It, it was really like made me think, yes, you know, you know, kind of you have those moments where your personality aligns with your soul and you know, I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's so interesting you say that, that that feels like you were doing the right thing because you've done a lot of things. Um, part of your hook with students is you started your career in music, right? Exactly. I did. I spent 22 years helping rock bands and songwriters, uh, video game developers tell stories through music. And I was always asking them, hey, what's the story? What's the story? And one day they turned the tables on me and said, okay, Ruta, what's your story? And that's what set me on the course to becoming uh, a novelist because my first book was based uh, on my family's story. So do you remember that moment? Do you remember the moment that someone said, what's your story? Who, who, who it was that asked you and where you were? I clearly remember. I was backstage. I was managing this band, a rock band from Orange County, California. And I was standing backstage uh, with the band. And the lead singer of the band asked me, and one of the reasons I remember it so clearly, first, no one had ever turned the tables on me before to say, hey, what's your story? And my reply, the first thing out of my mouth, I mean, if someone asks you, hey, what's your story? What's the first thing that you say? I mean, the first thing I said, my response was, my story, I'm Lithuanian. <laughs> and the singer of the band looked at me, there was this awkward pause and he said, I'm sorry, how long have you had that? <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, no. I said, oh no, Lithuanian isn't an illness. Lithuania is a country. And you know, bless him. He said, you know what, Ruta, with all due respect, not many people understand what that means to be Lithuanian. You better go figure out your own story. This guy said it in passing. I mean, probably never even is on his radar now, but it changed my life, you know? So I clearly remember that moment. 
Wow. That's incredible. So one person asked you a question and it changed your trajectory before that. Did you think like music was your career for like, that's what you wanted to do forever. You loved working in music before that moment. I did. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I wrote my first book when I was in third grade and it was a huge fiasco. I wrote it for an assignment and long story short, it ended up becoming a banned book in third grade. And it was called The Adventures of Betsy. And The Adventures of Betsy, let's just say meeting with some resistance, it stole my courage. And do you know I didn't write again for 20 years? I knew I was interested in storytelling, but I decided to pursue storytelling through music. Uh, and yes, I did. I thought, oh, I, this is my career. I owned a company. Um, I had employees. I, it was never in my consciousness that I would abandon all. And how, like, I'm sorry, but how do you, how do you, you just like untied everything and you were like, I'm going to do this anymore? No, I decided, um, you know, when this musician said, uh, Hey, what's your, what's your story that I was really going to investigate that. And I, I ended up going to Lithuania and meeting some of my relatives and, and realizing that there was a big untold story, a secret in my family, uh, that I ended up writing a novel about. And, but I wrote it while I was working in the music business. And I didn't have the courage to tell anyone that I was trying to write a book. Uh, so I was working my, my job in the mornings. I'd go to Starbucks at like five in the morning and people thought I was working on a concert tour or something. And then the book came out and my, much to my shock, it became a New York Times bestseller. And my agent said, I really want you to think about what you're doing here. You know, you take many roads to get to a destination in life and you wanted to be a writer, you now have a New York Times bestseller, what's the impact of what you're doing, of telling these untold stories and helping give voice to people who, were who never had a chance to tell their story? He said, or you can work in the music business and bail rock stars out of jail. And, <laughs> I, I mean, and we laughed about it, but it for me, it was more than that. I mean, I had managed the same people for 20 years and my you know, clients, they were the ones who came to me and said, we think you need to do this. You've given your life to us and to others for over 20 years. And there's something going on here, Ruta. You should try it. And so, yeah, so it was, it was really a nice transition. And I know sometimes, you know, when we're working in a career, the idea of a pivot or changing gears like that, it's, it's very scary. It was for me. Really? I'm going to chuck you know, two decades of a career in the music business to write about totalitarianism for kids. Like, <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be lucrative. Um, so I, I didn't just do the pivot. I, I wrote my first two books while still working in the music business and sort of did a slow sunset clause. <laughs> so you've kind of hit a theme that I, has come out a lot in this podcast is around the people around you, right? So these clients that you have, you bailed out of jail, are telling you that you have a story. And then your agent is saying, you know, this seems like what, you, what you're meant to do and what you're meant to be doing. Who else is sitting at that table when you're making a huge shift, when you decide like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change, totally change, who else is sitting at the table that you talk to? Uh, well, some, not only that I, I might not talk to, but that I admire so much. I have been so fortunate in my life to have really great mentors. And that was something that I sought from the time I was very young. And people often think of this concept of mentorship, that this has to be someone 
older than you, who's in your field but more experienced than you. But I learned along the way that reverse mentorship, that being mentored by people who are younger than you and who see the world differently than you do, that's so helpful. So when this came up, who did I go to? I went to some of the music producers and rock songwriters who had mentored me, who were great storytellers, and we talked about it. I talked to some of my former students who were much younger than me, um, who saw things through a different lens, you know? And then, of course, uh, my dad was still with us at the time, and I talked to my dad, and I said, what do you think? And I have to stress, and I wonder if any of your listeners might be able to relate to this. I'm the daughter of, of, of a refugee. My dad, you know, uh, fled from Lithuania. And being the daughter of an immigrant, it's a, a, a unique situation because my father lost everything, his country, his family, his home, and he rebuilt. And so he had this vision that anything was possible. I, I think, Laura, I could have told my parents that I wanted to be a naked astronaut and they would have said, okay, you can do it. So who did I go to? I went to my father to discuss it. Um, and he helped me put together a plan. And so it was, you know, sort of this, this I don't know, gaggle of, of people. But I still do that today. And, of course, my husband, who's my just greatest, you know, life coach and, and cheerleader. I say, you know, that love, it gives you courage and wings and, <laughs> you know, and that net. So I was very fortunate um, to do that. So a naked astronaut might sound crazy, but I also have this really distinct memory from when you talked to my middle school students uh, that you also, as a part of, I think it was the first book, writing that book, went and spent some time in, I, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, but an overnight camp kind of situation, where is it a castle? Can you remind me? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. I wish it was a castle. It was a gulag. Um, okay. <laughs> There's was, the word. <laughs> it was a former Soviet prison. Um, my first book, Between Shades of Grey, tells the story of a Lithuanian artist and her mother and younger brother who are deported to a death camp in the Arctic. Um, and to research that book, I had an opportunity to visit um, an abandoned gulag and take part in an immersion experience that was being... Uh, presented by uh, a school in Latvia. They had 13 Latvian college students that were studying um, the Soviet gulag system. And I wormed my way onto that experiment. And that's what you're remembering. I do really believe in writing novels that um, working with the true witnesses and trying to you know, travel to the places where these events occurred are really important with the understanding, of course, that me going and taking part in an immersion experience, which was kind of like the Zimbardo uh, experiment uh, that Stanford did. But still, that in no way comes close to what these human beings, uh, you know, who endured these, these troubles, you know, what they experienced. But I do like to try to do that. Um, well, and what I remember from that story is that you went in with, again, I think younger students, to your point about this mentors who, and you thought like, I've got this, like I'm strong and ended up like kind of looking to them for, for their strength. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, this was, and first I want to, I want to, uh, preface this by saying, do not try this. Do not, <laughs> we, if you're living in a, a country, you know, freedom is fragile. Why would you ever sign up for an immersion experience in a gulag? <laughs> Don't do it. But I did it for research. And yes, to your point, going in, my husband asked me why I was doing this. He said, what are you trying to prove? And, and this was the way I thought of it. I thought, well, no, these are 13 young guys. 
this could be, you know, really intense. They might need my help. Oh, please. That's who I thought I was. And once we got into um, the experiment, I had forgotten that real prisoners in a gulag, these human beings, they were starving. They were sleep deprived. And here we came, me and 13 guys. You know, we weren't starving or sleep deprived. So they had to find a way to break us down. And they used physical force and physical intimidation. And it never occurred to me when I signed the papers saying that I was going in and couldn't come out, um, that someone, you know, I don't know, physical brutality. You can't hit me. You can't punch me. I'm, I'm an American. I have rights. I had signed all that away. And I, I will never, ever forget. Uh, and I tell students, um, you know, how powerful this was for me that going in, I thought that there, I was some hero, but when the going got tough and, and, you know, and, and it, it was just so difficult. And I remember that there were a bunch of guys that were laying on the ground who, who could not get up. And the, these people who were the guards in this experiment came out and pushed us into the prison. And I remember as we were being corralled into the prison, looking back, and there was one student still on the ground. And I just kept thinking, we're leaving a human being on the ground. Like, I am leaving a human being on the ground. And that moment where you realize, wait, there is no hero inside of me. And then when we were in the cell in the prison, and it was dark, and by that time, I'm crying. And I mean, ugly crying. I mean, just terrible, ashamed, can't catch my breath crying. And in the darkness, I hear, psst, hey, American lady. And this arm reaches out and lands on my shoulder. And in my ear, this voice says, please don't cry. I'll help you. And that show of kindness in an atmosphere of cruelty, it was so powerful. And I would never do that experiment again. I've had two back surgeries. <laughs> so it's this terrible <laughs> failed experiment. But it really helped me write the book because I realized when I was interviewing people who survived gulags and death camps, many told me, you know, Ruta, someone helped me. And when I was doing those interviews, I was writing it down. But in that moment, I realized how truly remarkable it is for a human being to help another human being. And so it, cha it really changed me and it affected me. And I do tell that story um, to students. And I think they can relate to it through examples of bullying or, or being an advocate, an ally for someone. Well, and I'll tell you, just, I've heard this story before. I'm hearing it again and I get goosebumps. I just get absolute goosebumps hearing it. And it makes sense why your books mean so much to kids, right? Because they read the stories and your research, your experiences, like it, you, you piece apart the humanity and, and like who these people might've been who, who lived through them. You, but you have so many books. That's your first book, but you've had multiple books since and you now, you know, that was your family's story. These are stories from, you know, Spain is personal, my personal favorite, <laughs> um, but you, and, and, uh, and you've got the world war two books. And I'm just so curious, you know, what other experiences have you been through as part of your research? What else, what else have you kind of done to learn? Well, you mentioned my book that's set in Spain, uh, The Fountains of Silence, which is set in the 50s during the dictatorship of Francisco Franco. And I spent seven years uh, researching and writing that book. I would say that book is my, when people say, do you have a favorite? And you're not supposed to, but I do. It's my favorite book that I wrote. <laughs> it's mine and too. <laughs> and that, I, that I've written. And I spent seven years. It, it's set in a hotel. And you asked what I did. I lived in that hotel. 
Did you? It used to be the Castellana Hilton. Now it's the Intercontinental in Madrid. And the staff was so fantastic. And so I went, I stayed at that hotel. They gave me complete access. I was, when I'm describing in the book, the character Anna and Daniel, when they're in the basement, I was in the tunnels below that hotel. Um, I was up in, in the rooms. I was probably the biggest creeper. Um, I, I went to the, the Inclusa, the, the orphanage that I talk about in the book and interviewed the doctor who was the doctor there for over 35 years. And, you know, interviewing, I went to study um, the young boys when they go to these bullfighting schools because I couldn't quite understand and grasp how bullfighting was almost a religious experience, but then going and, and seeing how these young boys... So I do a lot of, um, a, a ton of research uh, like that and interview uh, so many people, the true witnesses. That's why I write stories that are set in more recent history, because I have access to those people who experienced what I'm writing about. And before we lose them, I want to take their testimony and I want to weave and braid that into characters to make the history human. That's always the goal. Make it human. And I can make it human if I travel there and experience as much as I can. Well, and so it's, I was going to ask you this question. You kind of answered it, but like, you know, your books are all, you choose, you know, a, 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 an event in history to kind of focus on. Right. And then you weave the stories around that event or, or the, the people that were there and I'm just, but they're all different, right? It's not like, you know, you're just a world war two, a, a world war two writer or just a, you know, Spanish, uh, Franco time where like you write everything. And I'm just curious, how do you choose? How do you choose what, what you think? And I know I'm hearing recent times matter because you're looking for people to interview. What else? Yes. Recent, recent times matter. I'm looking for something that affected a very large group of people, but that for some reason remains unknown. For example, most people think the Titanic is the single largest maritime disaster when my book Salt to the Sea shows that actually, you know, there was a, a maritime disaster near the end of World War II that was 10 times the magnitude of the Titanic, but it's a story that slipped through the cracks of history. So I want something that I feel um, has not to shine light in the darker corners of history, to show um, the history that might uh, people might not be familiar with. And lastly, um, because I'm a crossover author, which means that my books are read by adults, but also by students and teens, I want something where young people were involved, perhaps catalysts, or at the forefront of this history. So I have those parameters, and it sounds like, oh wow, that probably narrows things down pretty quickly. But you know what? It doesn't. Um, young people, to me, it's like 18 to, you know, to 24. Uh, I have a list of 27 ideas that I'm currently researching. So, Where would we be without the young people? I think it's a lot, you know, they have so much energy. They, they are often our revolutionaries. So that makes sense. You know, you said something about dark corners. You look for the dark corners of history. And we're in this interesting moment um, in the U.S. around books and that it seems like a lot of our books with dark corners are being are being banned or teach parents are afraid of them reading. Have any of your books been banned? I haven't seen them on any lists. Yes. Um, out of the easy, um, has uh, been, been challenged. And most recently, just last week in Florida, my book, I must betray you, which is about the Romanian revolution right. um, and victims of communism. That's been challenged. Yeah. Interesting. And so, you know, when you think about, I see you looking at, at these moments, trying to find places that maybe aren't being seen mm -hmm. and that we can learn from and be inspired by the young people who are, who were involved. Um, 
why why is that so important and why is it so important that children are reading these books both adults and children right and first i have to say um i am grateful for parents who are interested in what their their child is reading i i'm really grateful for that and i think though that we need to consider that we might not understand how a book might um hold a child might feed a child might make the world less lonely for one child. And I'll give an example. Um, I mentioned my father, who fled from Lithuania when he was just four years old, and he spent nine years in a refugee camp. And in the first early days of the refugee camp, the librarians and teachers that were in the camp decided to organize a story time for the, the children, you know, to sort of make the world less lonely for them at that time. <clears throat> and the book they chose was Pinocchio, and not the mid-century Disney version of Pinocchio. I'm talking about the 1880 book by Carlo Carlotti, which was highly, highly, oh my goodness, debated. That book was, was forbidden. They said that the author hated children. Um, in the original version, Pinocchio was captured, beaten, starved, whipped, stabbed, and had his legs burned off, right? <laughs> and the refugee children... The refugee children, they loved it. Laura, these kids, they had been captured. They were starving. Many of them wanted to reunite with their beloved dads, you know. And this story, my dad called it Pinocchio. He said that they were all chanting like Pinocchio. And this was a book that that people wanted to ban. Fast forward, my dad was eighty, uh, was four at the time. Then he's like eighty-four. And my dad was suffering from a, a very cruel disease where he, he didn't know who he was or who I was and, and really in his final you know, decline. And uh, one day I stepped away from the bed to get a comb to comb his hair and I heard him gasp. And I came back and he was pointing at the television and he said, Pinocchio, my friend. He didn't know who he was, who I was, but he knew Pinocchio. So that book that people were so insistent, was inappropriate, had to be taken away, was not for children. It held my father when he was four and again when he was 84. So again, we just never know how a book might hold a soul, you know, right. and how it might affect someone. So if we can just communicate with each other, which I think is the difficult thing. I mean, these are presented as wedge issues, meaning issues intentionally to divide us. And I think, no. No, if we say no, let's come together. Book talks are the best talks, right? <laughs> That's right. why we have book clubs. And we can disagree, but we don't have to be disagreeable. I really love what you pointed out at the beginning, though, that these parents who are involved aren't necessarily the problem. There's, there's an opportunity here. Um, I was a, a young reader as a child um, and a really strong reader. And so my parents had to sign paperwork for me to read certain books from the library. And then my mom ended up reading them with me. And I remember like crying over characters with my mother and the connection we had because I was reading books that the school was kind of like, let's, let's ask a few questions before we just like hand this to her. And I think that there's a lot of value in that. So I appreciate that you can kind of see both sides of the issue. And I also really love your Pinocchio story. Um, it's really beautiful. It, 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 it really just changed the way I, I thought I think about things because, I, you know, obviously we see things through our own lens. And I'm sure many people thought that Pinocchio, how could a child ever relate to this? But we, we just 
we don't know. So let's give it some breathing room and talk about it. <laughs> we don't know their story yet, right? All the things that they're dealing with. It's totally true. Um, I think I think that's a really lovely way of putting that. I want to talk about your new book, but before I do, I want to ask one more question about you as a writer. So when you made this huge transition, I mean, I think, I think there are lots of people right now working in bookstores, sitting in middle school classrooms, wanting to do, wanting to write. And so I'm curious, like, what were the steps as far as like learning to do that? Oh, thank you for asking that because I want to point out people often assume when, when I have an event or that my degrees are in English or history or, you know, uh, that I have an MFA in writing. No, my degrees are in finance, international finance. So I'm a very unlikely candidate to have become a novelist. But I say that because I truly believe it's possible. What did I do? Um, I, of course, you know, good readers are good writers. I read as much as I could, studied the craft through reading. Then I joined some writing organizations. I joined um, SCBWI, the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. And I attended some conferences where I was taking workshops on craft, learning about how to build a plot, what are the key elements of setting, things like that. And I had the opportunity to put in uh, a manuscript for critique. And that was so valuable to me because I realized that my first attempts, I, I wasn't um, going in the right direction. I wasn't writing in my authentic voice. I was trying to write humor. And it was only at a critique that the agent pointed out to me uh, when they saw five pages of this historical that I had been working on saying, Ruta, what are you doing? You are using humor as a shield. Your authentic voice is in this dark, sad stuff. You know, why are you running away from that? And so that was very pivotal for me. And I also found a writing group. I've been with the same writing group for 20 years. Five of us, they see my pages before my agent, before my editor. And I had that writing group before I had an agent, before I was published. Wow, that's incredible and like so tangible and usable for other people who want to write. So thank you for that. All right. Your new book, um, you sent me a copy, which was such a lovely gift. Um, something you don't know is since the last time I saw you about five or six years ago, and now I've had children, um, I have three-year-old twins. And I will tell you that this book means a lot to me as an educator, as um, someone who loves books and loves reading and writing. But as a mother, oh my gosh, I made my husband read it. I was like, we all like we're doing okay, okay. <laughs> you know, the stories from your mother and from your poop brown room and things like that. And I have to know. So you wrote your first book was about your family. And now this, too, is about your family. Tell me a little bit about like why you wrote this and what like who is it really for besides me as a mother? <laughs> well, first of all, congratulations. Congratulations. And Thanks. second, thank you. That means so much to me that the book touched you in a human way. And you're right. I write historical fiction. But after doing that now for 15 years, I noticed at events that the conversations quickly turned from the conversations of history to conversations of personal history. And I saw, I mean, I sat in rooms when we did like these community read programs where we had readers from families who stood on opposite sides during the war and we were all in the same room and we were discussing this and, and people were making friends and it made me realize that, wow, history divided us. But through reading and sharing our stories, we can be united you know, in story and study and personal remembrance. And that was a very powerful moment for me. And I decided that I wanted to encourage others 
to share their own story, that that's what's going to facilitate human understanding. So um, I came up with this idea for the book, You the Story, a writer's guide to craft through memory to help people reflect on their own experiences, their own memories, um, and mine that compost of, of experiences and vivid depth of feeling to create rich writing. And that you don't have to want to write a novel. That's okay. And I just want to make you realize that you do have a story. Uh, and, and maybe sharing your story might make the world less lonely for someone else. So that was the inspiration for the book. I'll tell you, it reminded me um, a long time ago, I went to uh, a teen book con again with students and um, Jason Reynolds was the keynote speaker. And the last thing he said to the students was from all of us authors to all of you kids, what we want, we want you to love our stories, but what we really want is for you to love your own. And that when I read this book, it, it just over and over and over, it came to me, this idea of we all have a story and we all need to own and love that story. We um, do. And also sometimes with a buffer of time, what I even realized in writing the book, you know, I break the book down, as you know, plot, character development, setting, but I'm infusing elements and, in, in, you know, little um, vignettes of my own story in it. And as I was writing that, when you talk about, you know, loving your own story, I realized that with a buffer of time, things that at once were so painful now were making me laugh. And that made me realize that it had gone from being a deeply lived experience to a deeply healed experience. And that was powerful for me. And I know that that's not always the case. And some memories aren't worth returning to. And those aren't the ones <laughs> we're talking about. We're going to leave those memories aside. But, you know, I, I think about it and I, I ask people, I want to ask your listeners, if, if a book was written about your life, what would the title be? What would the title be? Give that some thought. Those, were the, those are the kind of questions I ask in the book and just want you to reflect on your story and realize that writing well and the power of story is less about how you were educated or where you've traveled or what you've seen. Or No, it's about your emotions and your feelings and how you express them. You know, and if you've felt deeply, you've lived deeply and you have the tools to be a writer. Yeah, I think it's totally true. And I think one of the things that I, I think throughout the story, throughout the stories of your childhood is that some of the moments that were the most like humiliating for you at one point turn into being the most hilarious. And if we could just get every middle school student to understand that, that with the passage of time, this very awful, humiliating moment that is very real and I, your, your feelings are, are true and, and real, but at some point you will laugh at them and I promise you will, and maybe you will write them and sell them. <laughs> It'll all be okay. I think, I think it'd be a great lesson for every kid. Well, and I think I should say, I find that readers enjoy reading about other people's humiliation. And um, you've read the book, so you know that I, I discussed that when I was 13 years old, I, I was going through this very dark you know, teenage turmoil. And I decided I need to do a complete makeover of my bedroom. And I painted the entire thing dark brown, even the in insides of the drawers. And I christened it the poop cocoon. And oh my gosh, people teased me. This was like such a source of, first of all, it was a difficult time in my life. And then this humiliation, but now looking back on it, oh my goodness, what, what fodder, what compost for character. You could, you know, the mantra show versus tell, you know, telling is she was a moody teenager. Showing is 
This young girl painted her entire room a dark shade of fudge and christened it the poop cocoon. You know, so those are the kind of examples that I wanted to give in the book. Well, and I think you do such a lovely job of like taking pride in them, right? The things that like might be crazy at one point, they're just, they're, they're beautiful moments of character and they design who you are. And it's why someday, you know, like you went on to do the great things is that at some point you were a poop cocoon teenager. (laughs) I was. And I think also though, you know, how we, we view our memories, it shapes our identity and the story that is our life. Can we look at our failures and our fiascos, of which I have so many, as I describe in the book, as like, ooh, this is a forest of, of exploration, not a suck hole of soul death. I mean, it's, you know, how, how, can, how we're looking, you know, how we're seeing things also really shapes our life. So in the book, I challenge people to say, hey, how are you looking at this past stuff? And how could you look at it afresh? Well, and I think one of the things that, again, I I talk about how as a mother, this book was really meaningful to me is I I do feel like we're in a moment in motherhood where it's a lot of like, oh my God, I'm ruining my child. (laughs) Whether it's, you know, you didn't breastfeed long enough or this or that, you know, and your parents were very open to who they were and who you were. And it was, it was so lovely to just read it and think, okay, I might be doing okay. And and I need to embrace what I have to bring to the table. Um, Is that really like how your childhood felt? Or is that just looking back? It feels like that. And like, you know, when you think about what was so great about your parents, what, what stands out to you? My parents, first, I think one of the things that was so great about them is that they, um, were so resilient. They both endured such difficult childhoods and could have become quite difficult themselves. But instead, they said, no, we're going to change this. And we're going to, even though we didn't have, we were poor and starving as children. Um, and, and we're not, we're really going to embrace life and give our, try to give our, our children every opportunity. And when I say opportunity, we didn't have money. My parents had curiosity, though, and they were very creative and allowed us to be creative. Um, And, oh, my gosh, when you say, oh, I didn't breastfeed long enough. No, I mean, my parents, maybe people can relate to this. We drove in the winter in Michigan with my parents chain smoking with all the windows rolled up. I mean, oh my goodness. Like, can you imagine? I remember being at traffic lights and looking over at other people and their car was just nothing but smoke and ours was nothing but smoke. And it was, they weren't concerned. Oh, that could negatively (laughs) impact my child's health. No. And you know, honestly, it, it, it didn't. Um, my parents very much raised us with a sense of wonder and curiosity, but also, you know, you got to do the work. You have to put in the work and you have to have, uh, have to have a plan. (laughs) Well, again, the stories are lovely. And I also just love the way you're like the one about your mother, like making you do crank phone calls also just like had me giggling forever that she just decided like you were a fun kid and she's going to be a fun mom and we're just going to be wild together. No, I think it was the opposite. I think I was a really uptight kid and she was so she had such a good sense of humor and she just wanted me to relax and she was delighted and mind you this was you know during the era of the suburban telephone where there was no caller ID 
you know, young people, they can't even fathom that right now. Like what? But at that point, you could just pick up the slimline phone and dial a number and someone would pick up having no idea who it was. And so prank calls, crank calls. Yeah, my mom was delighted by them. And she would just spur me on to create these new voices and these new stories. And, you know, on a Friday night, that's what we would do. We would crank call people. I would now probably end up in jail. But, oh, it, it was, it, there were so many great memories. And honestly, for, as, as a storyteller, it really helped me. I had to create kind of on the fly because when I was calling people and doing these voices, then they, you know, it was like an improv kind of a thing. You know, and my mom just loved it. She sat there chain smoking, laughing her head off. <laughs> Oh, oh my gosh. I love it. That's just so much fun. I, I it, You could bring your childhood to life. And again, as a mother, it was really fun to read. Um, and also as someone who's worked with students, like I cannot wait for every student to get their hands on this. It was my graduation gift to everyone. Anybody who graduated this year got this book. <laughs> I was Thank like, you. go and write your story. <laughs> this is what the world has needs from you. I don't know if you know, um, Anne Lamott has some amazing quote about like, if you never write down all the things that are tugging on the sleeves of your heart, like you'll never live. And this is the one thing you've been born to do is to tell us your story. So I, I appreciate that you're encouraging us all to do it. And I absolutely love it. We only have a few more minutes. So I'm going to ask you our five questions that we ask every single guest on okay. more than a test here. So the first thing is um, the reason we call our podcast more than a test is because it has to do with our product that uh, assesses children reading all the time with their own voice. Uh, but everyone who hears more than a test thinks it means something else. So I'm curious when you heard more than a test, what did you think it meant? Oh, um, more than a test. To me, I was intrigued. It meant there's there are many layers here and you need to dig deeper to find the the true meaning that's kind of what i was thinking that's awesome um one literary moment in your life and what we mean by that is a moment with you and a book that you that hold on to that really matters to you it could be you and a book and someone else or a book that someone gave you but um, you and a moment with a book Oh, that happened very young when i read James and the Giant Peach by Roald, Roald. Dahl and that book made the world less lonely for me. I saw the power of what was happening for this character in the book when he found friends and also the power of, oh my gosh, a book can make me feel all these things and I've never forgotten it. Oh, that's amazing. Well, and they made it to a movie sense. So, you know, when you're 80, if you can't remember, <laughs> I will bring you the movie and we'll watch it together. Thank so you, you have a friend. And I'll say my friend. <laughs> exactly. Um, a piece of technology that you love. Oh, gosh, a piece of technology that I love. Well, um, ugh, there's so much because to do research, you know, I have to. Um, but OK, I'll say I'll give some a different. I love audiobooks, so I love my um, my library app, Libby, um, because I can, you know, when I'm doing chores, when I'm out in the yard, I can listen to audiobooks, and I love that Libby app. What are you listening to right now? Oh, I'm listening to um, uh, a book. Well, I, I shouldn't give it away. It's for research. It's for an upcoming project, so I'm not going to give it away. It's a, it's a research audiobook. <laughs> All right. I'll let it go. I love okay. Libby too. Thanks for mentioning it. A lot of people are on Audible, but Libby is pretty great. So, yeah. um, so I, I'm sure tons of people who are aspiring writers are listening or people who are aspiring to change their, you know, career tra trajectory. What would be one piece of advice you'd give those people? Give yourself, uh, the courage and permission to fail. Failure is a prerequisite to, to success. And I could have, you know, talked myself out of, of this, of becoming a writer and given myself all of the reasons why it wouldn't work. But instead, uh, that little voice inside of me, 
you know, I listened to it and said, okay, I'm probably going to fail. I will fail, which I did. Uh, and I had to rewrite my first book 17 times before it was published. <laughs> um, but, but give yourself that permission to stumble, you know, and pick yourself up. That's a journey in itself. Awesome. And one book you think everyone should read. I think everyone should read um, Man's Search for Meaning uh, by Viktor Frankl, which um, is about, uh, it's a very slim book. It's very short about a man who is, is sent, um, you know, uh, to a concentration camp uh, during World War II. And the book just highlights that we can't choose our hardships, but we can choose how we face our hardships. And it's so inspiring. It's an incredible book. Can I tell you a funny story about it, though? Yeah. So I have books. I'm, my, I'm a reader. I have books all over my house. Um, and over the years, I've had eight different boyfriends give me a copy of that book. And when we recently moved, we found like the eight, the stack of that. It is my, my, something about the men I choose, I guess. But I, so I have, I have many copies. If anybody needs, I have, I have large print. <laughs> I have different covers. If anyone needs a copy, I can help them out. I also just want to put a plug for, I know you have this book, your book is amazing. Um, the new one, but also Fountains of Silence. I know is your favorite. It is also my favorite. And I think that it is just a really special book about a time period that not many people in the United States know about. So I want to plug that one too. Thank you so much for being here today. This has been lovely. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on the more than a test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader. And we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week. And thanks for joining.